So we're going to read Luke 6, 12 to 15, and then we're going to jump to Acts 2, because today's the day. Luke 6, beginning at verse 12, says, One of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. And let's jump to Acts 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 12, and then we're going to read from 42 to 47. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and they were filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galilean? Then how is it that each of us hears him in our, his own native language? Parthians, Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors to Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And then verse 42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good. They gave to everyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that all of our hearts be ready for what you have in store for them. Lord, anything that, that comes from me and not from you, let it fall to the floor, but anyone from you, let it take root in our hearts. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is James. I'm the pastor at Wellspring Worship Center, and uh, I tell people a lot I have the best job in the world. I love what I do. Um, the last few weeks, we've been asking this question, who is this man? Uh, this is a question asked by the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, but I think it's a question that we want to keep on asking. Who is this man? Who is 
Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus? And in particular, we're looking at the people that Jesus surrounds himself with and what we can learn from that. So the first week we looked at Jesus's parents, at Mary in particular, and really what this great revolutionary figure and, and song that she gives us. And last week we changed gears a little bit and we looked at people who are really despised, really marginalized, really disliked, and that was the tax collectors. We looked at why they were so despised in the first century. As it turns out, their being despised in the first century is kind of justified because they were kind of the worst. Tax collectors' jobs involve collaborating with the cruel and oppressive Roman Empire where they taxed the poor and gave that money to the rich. So we can't really blame people with being mad at tax collectors. And yet Jesus does choose to spend an awful lot of his time with tax collectors, a lot of time eating and befriending tax collectors. And he even calls Levi, or Matthew, a tax collector to be one of his disciples. We heard about that a moment ago. Now, today is Pentecost, as I read out, where we celebrate that Holy Spirit coming down to be the disciples' guide and to be our guide. And in that original Pentecost meeting, there were the original 11 plus Judas's replacement. There were other close followers of Jesus and, and Mary, Jesus's mother, was there also. It's the last time we hear from her. And I know this is kind of weird. Most of this sermon is not about Pentecost, but Pentecost is kind of a, a spoiler alert for the things I'm going to talk about today. Because I want to look a bit more about at the disciples and look at kind of how they were together, how they behaved with one another during Jesus's ministry. We're asking this question, who is this man? And so we should ask, who is this man that chooses these guys to be part of his inner circle? And so I want to ask these three questions. Like, what about those disciples that maybe we don't hear about as much? Then I want to ask, what kind of statement is Jesus making by spending time with these people? And finally, maybe predictably, what, what does that mean for us as a church? I, I, in my head, it was this really cool, fun idea to look at the disciples that no one really talks about. But then I realized there's a reason that no one talks about them. It's because the Bible doesn't really like talk about them. And this is really embarrassing. But today, before today, before this week, I don't think I could have named all 12 of the disciples. I, I wasn't raised in Sunday school. So I feel that's something that, like, how, how many people here are confident they know all 12 of the disciples? Like, be honest, put your hand up. You, you need to be ashamed of this. Really, no one knows all 12 of the disciples. But, but I really struggle with this, and I kind of go through it, and I'm like, you know, there's Peter. Peter did a lot. No, lots about Peter. Uh, we know about John. We do have the Gospel of John, so that helps. The Gospel of John tells us that John is pretty great and is the disciple that Jesus loved and also is good at running. Um, that's the thing that John thinks is important to note about himself when Jesus is resurrected. Uh, we know about Matthew or Levi again. We attribute the Gospel of Matthew to this guy. Uh, as I say, he's a tax collector who follows Jesus. Uh, Andrew, kind of know about Andrew. He's a fisherman. He's the less famous brother of Peter. Judas is easy to remember. Um, probably not for the right reasons. And then you can, it's easy to remember other Judas. 
because all we know about other Judas is he wasn't that Judas, <laughs> which is pretty rough. Uh, I can remember James because my name is James, so that's like six or seven now. Uh, but then I do forget, admittedly, the other James. So that's how insignificant the other James is, that even someone with my name I can't remember. It's a bit embarrassing. Uh, Thomas is famous really for one thing, which is not believing that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and says, until I put my fingers in his spear wound, I won't believe it. Uh, Philip, anyone remember Philip? He was involved in feeding the 5,000, does a couple of other things. Uh, Nathaniel, sometimes translated as Bartholomew, so there's some argument as to whether this guy is really significant or really insignificant. Uh, and last but not least, today at least, is Simon the Zealot. And we don't know that much about a lot of these disciples. As I say, I was going to have this really fun sermon, like, did you know this? And like, no, because the Bible doesn't tell us anything about them. But what we do know is that they're they are unique individuals. They have their own personalities. And that's not something I'd considered as much before this week. In my head, it was a kind of copy-paste of Peter. And that's probably because a lot of the medieval artwork is Jesus and 11 of the same like white-bearded old dude following him around. And then Judas, who looks really Jewish because of anti-Semitism. Um, that, that's what I have in my mind when I think of the disciples. 12 identical men who agreed with one another all the time. But that is not the case. We know that's not the case. And so when we ask who is this man, we're asking who does he surround himself with and why is it important that they are different? And to dig into that a bit more, I'm going to highlight this guy, Simon the Zealot. So, again, I, I will concede there isn't an awful lot written about Simon the Zealot. The, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 10, he's called uh, Simon the, uh, the Canaanite. So, he is called Simon, he is a zealot, he is from Cana, that is Canaan. That's really all we know. So if you're hoping for more on Simon, I've got bad news for you. But what we do know about, we do know about zealots. Let's just talk about zealots. Zealots were one of the Jewish like, groups or parties in the first century, which included the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we hear about and Jesus argues with. Uh, but the Pharisees thought that they could win back their nation by being holy enough and pure enough and separate enough with the right teaching, they'd, they'd win their country back from Roman oppression if they just got that right. The zealots, however, were kind of violent revolutionaries. They believed that Rome could be overthrown by force, by violence, uh, by killing and dying if necessary, which is the zealots were very happy to use violence if necessary. They were very happy to die for their cause. They considered their deaths to be an atoning sacrifice to be to beat the Romans, to God to give their country back. Uh, both the men crucified next to Jesus were zealots. So Rome didn't treat zealots particularly well, but zealots didn't treat Rome well either. Zealots believed in overthrowing their oppressors by whatever means necessary. They hated the Romans. They hated the Romans. But there were, there were some groups that they hated even more. And the groups that they hated even more were the Roman collaborators. 
their own people who had sold out to the Romans. And does anyone remember who the worst collaborators were? Tax collectors are the worst of the collaborators. And what was Levi's profession again? Tax collector, well done. And I'd missed this. I'd missed this up until this week. And it blows my mind, and I hope it blows yours too. But for a zealot, literally the only thing we know about Simon, there is no one more disgusting or vile or treacherous than tax collectors. And, and yet here's Levi, also called to be one of the twelve. Levi the tax collector. And here they both were, following Jesus all the time, forever. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus that calls together these sworn enemies and yet they eat together all the time? What sort of testimony do you think that was to the people around Jesus, to people in that world? People ask that question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And and you all know that's one of my favorite verses and something I meditate on a lot. But for me, almost more pertinent and interesting is how does Jesus get sinners and tax collectors and zealots to eat together? How does Jesus do that? How does Jesus get the sinners and the tax collectors and the zealots to eat together? Because again, remember Pentecost is, is coming. <laughs> in the world that Jesus is speaking to. There's going to be a space where those, bar those barriers break down. How does he do it? And I realize that most of my sermons are, are kind of on this, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, I suppose. But, but that's what Jesus does, right? When, when Jesus is at the table, when our focus is on Jesus, somehow those differences seem less significant. If a tax collector and a zealot can be found at the table of Jesus, then, then we have no excuse to not eat with one another. I, I don't think that Jesus demands uniformity from his disciples. I think he picks them because they are different, because I think that makes a much stronger statement to the world. Of course we don't agree. Of course we come from different backgrounds. Of course we have different priorities. But when you focus on Jesus, when they focus on him, when they focus on his teaching, those differences don't seem quite as important. We, we know the disciples argued. Um, Luke 22 has this line that a dispute arose amongst them about who was to be considered the greatest. I mean, talk about missing the point. <laughs> I still love that language. A dispute arose amongst them. Like, no, a bunch of drunk dudes were arguing about who was best. That's like... <laughs> Because it seems like those folks still think what they came from makes them better. <laughs> They're still arguing about it. The disciples don't agree on everything. They came from a variety of perspectives and backgrounds and circumstances and values. But there is no reason other than Jesus that you'd find a tax collector eating with a zealot. Jesus doesn't 
demand that they agree, but he does demand that they be able to eat with one another. And I think that shook the world. And I think a world that was so factionalized and continues to somehow be maybe more factionalized. That world 2,000 years ago was having those walls broken down by that Prince of Peace. Like, when, when we focus on his words, we focus on what matter. Like, from the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to shine and rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Loving our enemy, loving those different, greeting those that aren't like us is one of the defining identifiers of being followers of Christ, and it always has been. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. Of course it doesn't. God doesn't want uniformity, but wants unity. I, I, can't, I just can't stress this enough that the idea of of sharing this meal with all the people who had sworn enemies. But that's the kingdom breaking through. That's the difference that Jesus makes. So it's possible <laughs> the blind man can see where this one's going when we ask that question, what does it mean for us now? First of all, I think it means we always keep Christ at the center. We keep his words, his teachings, his person at the center always. And when we focus on that, we get to see how insignificant our differences are when we have Jesus in common. Don't you think it would be such an incredible testimony to the world if they were to look at Christians and see, hey, they disagree with another a lot. But see how they love one another, despite that disagreement. That's, that's something I, I pray for, and, and, and please be praying for it too, because it's something the world so desperately needs. The world is, is really fractious right now. <laughs> A lot of people are disagreeing. And I think one of the best things about church is, is that we worship and we feast and we spend time with people that we just wouldn't spend time with otherwise. That's just one of the best things about being here for me, that each person has a different story. We're not some copy-paste group of followers like the disciples weren't either. And some of y'all all have opinions that are pretty contrary to one another, and probably quite a lot of you disagree with me on stuff, and that's okay. I don't want a church where everyone agrees with one another, or even with me. I just want one that knows that Jesus is king, that knows that Jesus has fixed our broken relationship with God, and his desire is that we fix our broken relationships amongst ourselves too. That his good news is good news for so many people on the margins that so rarely get to hear good news. That's what we want.
focus on Jesus all the time. Like I, I can't stress this enough. I just I think church is beautiful. Like I'm, I'm gonna point you out, Phyllis, because Phyllis is kind of mean to me. Phyllis is like, how old are you? Ninety two. Pretty old, anyway. Um, <laughs> how else am I gonna be hanging out with a ninety two year old like fearsome Jamaican lady who like runs her stroller into me out of affection? That doesn't happen anywhere else. Like that's we only get to do that because. And I love you for this, Phyllis. You know I do. You know she's gonna she's gonna run that thing in after the service, right? She's she's coming for me. <laughs> I think I can run faster than you. We'll see how it goes. But we get that because of church. <laughs> and I'm going to assume a 92 year old Jamaican lady has a different story to me, and and has different experiences to me, and has a different understanding. Of, of those smaller pieces, but we agree on the big pieces, right? We agree that Christ is king. We agree that he's on the throne. We agree that that relationship between us and God has been fixed by who Jesus is. And I think that's, I think that's so beautiful. And, and in a world that does seem to be splitting all the time and so angry with one another all the time, and where we create echo chambers all the time and we surround ourselves with people who only agree with us. This is one of the reasons church is so important because it might be one of the few places you spend time and you talk to people that don't agree with you. That's a value. That's not a bug. It's a feature. That's how it's supposed to be. Like <laughs> The echo chambers are everywhere. I, this is what the internet does. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying the internet knows what you want to see and then it shows you those things. That's, that's the design. So all the time we're on the internet, which by the way, I am all the time, I'm not criticizing the internet even though I should, but I'm aware that it's feeding me exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> it confirms the things I already think are true and at its worst belittles those who disagree with me. But we spent so much time convinced that being right or that being right is so important or it's so important that other people know that they're wrong, that we've pushed people away. I, I mentioned my old boss, uh, Tim, last week. And I mentioned that he's wise and brilliant and how uh, important he was and is in my life. Um, when I started youth pastoring 14 years ago, I know I'm old, that's all I know, uh, a long time ago now, and uh, I don't want to brag, but uh, at, at 21, James had been a Christian for 18 months and had an undergraduate degree in philosophy. So that dude knew everything. <laughs> that was 21-year-old James was peak confidence James. <laughs> and there was some disagreement I got into with Tim and, uh, and he said to me, like, James, like, I know, like, you know stuff, I get that. But you're way too concerned about winning arguments. Don't win arguments and lose people. Let's, let's be a church that wins people and, and doesn't care about winning arguments. Let us let, like those disciples, be this amazing testimony to the world. But these people seem to don't have as much in common. Like, I can't imagine why else they'd be together, but they seem to be living the way that Jesus asks them to.
They act justly and they walk humbly. They love their neighbor. They're following that example that Jesus set his disciples. We, we don't always have to agree, I'm not asking for that, but we have to agree that we all matter. Let me, let me finish talking about the disciples for a moment. Because <laughs> we, we know the disciples got a whole bunch wrong. They argued and, and, and they argued a bunch and they abandoned Jesus when it mattered most. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end at Pentecost either, but, but spending a moment in Pentecost, that first spirit movement was a bunch of people that had so little in common they couldn't even understand one another. And yet through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to understand one another. They were able to listen to one another. Different languages don't matter because, because with Jesus they unified. They come from a different background. It doesn't matter because of Jesus. And we see the immediate fruits of that. They come together, they study, they pray, they share. People from all over the world, all those different faiths, but they're all uh, understandings, <laughs> come together unified by Jesus. I, I, I just, I hope that's an encouragement to us. I hope that's, I guess, that's something to, to look forward to, to aim for. Because I think it's this beautiful and important reminder. And when we ask, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is this man that draws together all these people that, that squabble against one another and disagree with one another and miss the point all the time and they abandoned Jesus? They learned what it meant to love one another, to pray with one another, to wait on the leading of the Holy Spirit together and to follow where the Holy Spirit led them. Like this, this man is Jesus and, and he's still doing that. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I pray for all of our hearts today. I pray for those folks that we find it difficult to love, even if we think we're right. And for the people that have hurt us, who maybe have thought that being right is more important, that winning arguments is more important than winning people. We pray that we are able to forgive them and that their hearts change too. We thank you that whenever we ask that question, who is this man, the answer is the one who loves us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.